Welcome to an emergency edition of Off the Record. I'm Matt Robeson. We're produced by WKXL. We are podcast, Google, Stitcher, iTunes, just about everywhere that you can get podcasts. We are available at Off the Record. And my very special guest today for a, an emergency discussion about the Senate results in Georgia, which look poised to hand control of the U.S. Senate to the Democratic Party, is Cliff Schechter. Cliff is the co-founder of Blue Amp Strategies, one of three firms that did creative content for the future president of the United States, Joe Biden. One of the reasons that we have Joe Biden coming into the Oval Office is the man who's with me today. He's also a provocative Twitter presence <laughs> and uh, really a good read on social media. Nice, uh, and nice use of the word provocative. Provocative. And uh, and he's got yeah, like an the, equally provocative he covers a podcast. covers sins, that word. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's, it's doing a lot of work in that sentence, provocative. Yes. Uh, and, and you've got a really spectacular podcast, the Unprecedented Podcast. Are you going to change the name of that? Because you don't want to unprecedent funny. the incoming president. Is that, Are you sticking with that? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Matt. Um, it's funny, John and I, John Arabos is who I co-host with. Uh, we've been having that conversation because we started a few months before the 2018 midterm and that was the purpose we both were thinking we want to do a podcast of some sort i'd done some regular gigs you know on some radio and tv shows before and i didn't have anything going on at that time and it was sort of like i'd like to do something regular because i can't help it i'll explode i need to say what i feel you know like that's i'm not good at, as you just said on social media about keeping my feelings to myself when i feel passionately and john wanted to do something like that too and we just were kicking around stuff and Trump had made that comment, you know, where he, you know, about something being unprecedented instead of unprecedented. And we thought double entendre. Perfect. We get to make fun of uh, what a moron he is. And we get to, to talk about how we'd like to unprecedent him. So when anything's founded with a specific purpose and then you achieve that purpose, not to claim we achieved it, but you know, we did whatever little well, we could you, do. You had a role that don't undersell. You actually are one of the few people who can say legitimately, you are part of the reason that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. I mean, thank you. Fair enough. I mean, you know, I wrote some some ads. Hopefully they they for TV and for radio and digital. And uh, so did my partner at uh, Blue Amp Strategies, Greg Pinello, who, you know, wrote ads for years for, for former President Obama. And you know, wrote and produced the video for his 2012 uh, uh, introduction at the convention in Charlottesville. Greg is very talented, and we should say that. So, I mean, you know, we, we played our role. Um, others did too. Uh, I'm not sitting here trying to be overly modest. I, I love, I mean, for me, it's been a career highlight and, and you know, very few things I could imagine will ever compare to it. Um, but well, you deserve all the accolades that you are getting, should get, will get in the future. Um, well, what about, you know, um, Matt, I'm gonna put some. I'm gonna put some brain power, by the way, into the into the name of your podcast. You really may have to rebrand, man. We might, I, and we're gonna think about that. But I also wanted to ask you. I mean, come on, Matt. You, we, we get together here, known you since high school, and you don't give me any credit for for my hundred meter dash um, back in the day. I mean, you, you that's really that choose. was the highlight right there. You gotta pick and choose. Cliff was uh, Cliff was quite speedy, um, you <laughs> know. And speedy. I I I don't know. I I don't know if I'm gonna. Uh, uh, no, age, no, please. age hits all of us. Age hits all of us. All right. All right. Trust Let's me. I, I, the... I go out and play with, play soccer with, with the 14 and the 11 year old now. And uh, I, I feel the, uh, the, the, the uh, various muscles, the quad and the precipice of pulling. So it's oh, a little look, bit of a different world these days. If, if you, if you can get through a sports session at our age and uh, not, not have an ambulance standing by for a groin pull, you're, you're doing okay. All right. Look, we are in emergency mode here because we are. As of as of today, and look, we're we're recording this as events are unfolding, and so it looks like both of the Democratic candidates in Georgia, 
uh, have succeeded, that John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock are going to be U.S. senators, and that is going to bring the balance in the U.S. Senate, Senate to 50-50, which means yes. that Kamala Harris, as the incoming vice president, will break ties, which means that Democrats will have effective control of the U.S. Senate. And as I was ruminating about this this morning, it occurred to me that this is a lot more complicated than it appears at first blush. It is a lot more complicated than Democrats yep. simply having control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Now, look, if you go back over the last 30 years, Bill Clinton came into office with control of the House, the Senate, the presidency. George W. Bush came into office with that trifecta. Barack Obama. Obama. One thing we all had in common is none of them left with that. Right. <laughs> Donald Trump. Well, that, you see, that's part of what I want to get into here. So look, th this raises a whole bunch of potential issues. We have seen in the last 20 years, party switches. We have seen the party that has that kind of control overreach. Think of Social Security under George W. Bush right. in 2005. We have seen- the, the, I'd say that things. the pattern- Oh, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. You're, no, you're on just, a good roll just, right now. There's just a litany. There's just a litany of issues. So Cliff, I, I'll, I'll let you, you're the guest here. I'll let you choose which of the complications, considerations, and potential problems that could beset what is otherwise a promising situation for Democrats. What interests you here? We're, we, we'll try and hit them all. Well, but. there's two things that interest me. I would, wait, there's probably more, but let's start with... Um, the, the two words, and I'm not a critic. I mean, I disagree with them at times and whatever, but I'm not a critic because I'm realistic about what states elect to. The two words are Joe Manchin, um, obviously, who would be one of the members of, of this 50-member uh, Democratic member Senate and is a Democrat from West Virginia, which at this point is more of a, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, you often have more of a chance of seeing Bigfoot um, in the woods outside of Charleston, West Virginia. Um you know, but it's not just him. I mean, Kirsten Cinema is more conservative than she really has to be being from Arizona that's trending to the left. John Tester from Montana. And, you know, the, the caucus has gotten more cohesive. I'm not saying it in a good way. Sadly, a bunch of the conservative Democrats were knocked out in 18. You know, Donnelly in Indiana and McCaskill in Missouri and others that would have to think about, you know, these kinds of things. And so it's actually a pretty cohesive caucus. You know, and others who come from states that you would say are at least lean Republican or marginally um, Democratic at this point, you know, Sherrod Brown doesn't care here. He, he steps up and he, and he says what he believes and fights and he's a charismatic presence and he wins in Ohio, even though obviously we've got a Republican lean now, you know, I mean, uh, you know, same with uh, um, Baldwin in Wisconsin, which has a, only a slight Democratic lean. Um, but, but Manchin's the big one. And, and, and here's what I would say, and Matt, I want your input because you worked in the House. Um, you, I don't remember. I don't think you worked in the Senate, but you're still going to absolutely have more legislative knowledge than I have when it comes to these things. So, look, when it comes to just economic things, financial things, um, things that affect the budget, they can go through a process called reconciliation and they only need, you know, 50 votes. Right. Um, so that would be good. Um, but for everything else, Joe Manchin has said he is not in favor of getting rid of, rid of the filibuster. Um, I think Kirsten Cinema said the same thing. I think if you're Joe Biden um, and your other members of the administration uh, and your other members of the Senate, you need to sit down with them and have and, and go through. I don't mean this in a condescending way. I mean, it's, go through a bit of a history lesson and explain to them that 
Mitch McConnell has now, he did this with Obama, Newt Gingrich and others did this with, with Bill Clinton, that if you don't, if you come in and people are excited that you're going to change things and you allow the other side to thwart every single thing you could do, so people do not feel like you have actually changed things, you will get crushed in your midterm election. We've seen it again and again and again. Republicans get crushed because they overreach. You brought up Bush and Social Security, and that happened in 2006 after he thought that barely winning, having the worst reelection of any incumbent since Woodrow Wilson, you know, meant that he could go, uh, based upon being a wartime president, meant that he could go and destroy people's Social Security. Democrats end up getting our ass, our butts kicked, pardon my French, uh, because we don't do enough, because we try to compromise too early, too much with Republicans who as Mitch McConnell has admitted, his whole goal in life is power. He doesn't care about policy. It doesn't matter at all, except for so much as it's keeping taxes and regulations off of business and getting campaign contributions. So we know this and we need to go into it with that mentality. So this is where I'll finish and I'll let you jump in. We, we need to go to me. A conversation needs to be had with Joe Manchin and, and, and with, um, uh, and with Kirsten Cinema. And the conversation goes something like this. Um, we don't have to get rid of the filibuster if they're willing to do some things. But you two are going to suffer and the rest of us are going to suffer and we're going to lose. You, Joe Manchin, will lose in West Virginia. Trust me, you didn't win by a huge amount last time. Um, you know, if people perceive that we have not done anything because they block us. So if you want to keep the filibuster, if you feel like it's too much to get rid of it, we need to sit down with Mitch McConnell, whatever, and we need to put a list together and say, if you do not allow these half dozen things come to a vote, we have the power and the filibuster will be gone and then we will do everything. Um, if you do, then we'll leave the filibuster. I mean, Joe Manchin has co-sponsored background checks, you know, on guns. He talked about the importance of, um, you know, of raising the minimum wage um, and raising social security. Like, I think there's a number of things they can do to make people's lives better so that Democrats get credit for that in the midterm and if they have to threaten getting rid of the filibuster to get Mitch McConnell to allow them to have a vote on those things, this is what they need to do. You go. Think, yeah, you bring up so many good issues. And I think, I think for listeners, this really highlights, everything that Cliff just said really highlights just how much the tip of the iceberg is the simple fact that Democrats, again, we're assuming here, right? This is, uh, this is a case of premature overreaction theater, right? Where we're... we're intentionally stipulating here that this result sticks. But look, well, it, Warnock it has, up, has won. I mean, Warnock, I, I yeah, Warnock is pretty much the it's awesome. Awesome. Is, yeah. is looking, still looking. What was the last count? So we can, I don't know if people, I, the last it's about I a 16,000 vote margin. That's so, that, considering the only ones left are provisionals and the types of things that massively favor Democrats. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty good. It can be pretty tough to overcome, but yeah. But still, okay. you know, look, I mean, but I, I think what you're pointing out is just how much is under the surface. Let, let's let's pick on the Joe Manchin piece of this for a second, not to pick on him particularly, but it is it, it does highlight the fact that all 50 Democratic senators essentially now exercise veto power over legislation in this scenario. Um, and let's not forget that the governor of West Virginia was a Democrat, was elected as a Democrat, Jim Justice, um, yep. and he barely made it 10 months in that position before he switched to the Republican Party. I'm not suggesting that Joe Manchin is going to switch, but he wields the hammer. And by the way, we have seen party switches in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Jim Jeffords from Vermont within the last two decades that have it's changed the balance of power, the balance yeah. of power. And so he has 
the hammer. And look, it, there are going to be a number of issues, both institutional rules-based like the filibuster and legislative, like how far do you go on a particular bill where Manchin and, again, effectively every single Democratic senator is going to be under the microscope here. And for their personal politics, let me ask you a question. If you're yes, advising, let's say you're working for Joe Manchin here and your job, you, you are Joe Manchin's chief of staff. So your job, your, your duty is to get that man reelected as a U.S. Senator, as a Democrat in West Virginia. No easy task. Do you also, want to get rid of the filibuster? I also, would argue it's, it, no. it's in 2024, I believe. Uh, in 2024. Right? So is it or is it 22? No. I no, I don't think he's up. I don't think he's so up. So he, it would be a presidential year, which any Democrat trying to win in West Virginia in a presidential year is going to be really up against it. Right. And so do you want the cover of the filibuster, of Republicans filibustering things? Or do you, because if you don't have that, then you are exposed as the vote. Every ad that's going to run against you, and you know this better than anyone, is going to be, you were the vote that sure. made such and such law. And so you are on the hook for every single piece. Of, now that's going to be the case anyway, but at least with the filibuster, you can push off onto Republicans the fact that certain things got blocked. So, I mean, I, I anyway, I just think that this is an example of yeah. how Democrats really need to carefully consider how much enthusiasm they want to start generating here about all the possibilities. It is going to be much harder of course, I mean, it's always senators, then it's our out. system is set up this way. You right. know, it, it's definitely much harder. I just was making the point and I agree with everything you said. And, you know, if I were advising Joe Manchin, I would say represent your constituents, you know, tread carefully, you know, represent your politics. He's a, he's a conservative Democrat, which still means he's to the left of virtually every Republican um, and has shown it has. I mean, you know, as a guy that was an, a, you know, I, there's obviously I know the gun issue from work I've done the best. A guy who was an A-rated NRA guy that when his first election to the Senate shot an EPA bill in his commercial, which I was none too fond of, um, and yet was one of the people to come together with Toomey of Pennsylvania, who by the way is retiring in two years, as is Burr of North Carolina. So they both are wild cards as to what they'd be willing to do. They both are a little, you know, Toomey's been moderate on some things and Burr, uh, certainly when it came to being on the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, put out the actual report on Russia, which is why the Trump people have always hated him and tried to subterfuge him. Uh, you need to use that where possible because there may be, I mean, a classic example is on any, forget Green New Deal, on any kind of climate legislation, are you going to be able to keep Joe Manchin aboard, a guy who's from West Virginia? I don't know if you are, but you may be able to bring Susan Collins in or Lisa Murkowski, who's got environmental concerns, you know, with, with was it Bristol Bay and, and, and uh, am I getting the name right? I'm forgetting. But in any case, um, you may be able to bring in Mitt Romney. You may be able to bring in Pat Toomey. You may be, I mean, you know, there's, there's some people that have some interests, you know, even my, as I like to refer to him, the huge jumble of jello known as our senator rob portman in this state um one of the few things he's done is to try to protect the great lakes because of the, of the environmental degradation there so there are people to reach out to on that i'm just making the overall point that you know you need to make clear to joe manchin and kirsten cinema is to me to, to to get that to get them aboard you need to play into their ambition and play into their 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 political interests and it's in their political interest to win 
And they've, you know, they both are smart enough to know what happened in 1994 and 2010 and 2014. If we do not, you know, it's the opposite of, well, we went too far. You didn't go far enough. People didn't feel the positive effects of what you did. You know, you passed this abstract thing called the Affordable Care Act. And then as Obama said, the biggest mistake he made in his presidency is he didn't bother to go out and, and explain it to people. You know, the same with the stimulus. They let Republicans take credit for all sorts of things and, and separate those things out. I mean, people in Kentucky were like, I love my Connect. And everybody'd be like, Your Connect is the local version of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, you you know, which you only got because of that money. And a lot of them didn't realize it. We absolutely have to make sure people realize what we've done for them and how it will improve their lives. And so if you know, if man, I understand like wanting, I guess in some cases, the cover of the filibuster, but Manchin's free to vote against whatever he wants. The issue is. If he does nothing, because we all do nothing, because we let Mitch McConnell hold the process hostage so that we never have 60 votes for anything and can only do a couple economic things that can fall through you know, with reconciliation, we'll get hammered again in the midterms. So if you were a betting man in one year, and you could see the Senate maybe not acting on this immediately, seeing how it goes, you know, holding this as a threat. In one year, is yeah. there going to be a filibuster still as part of the rules in the U.S. Senate? I think there will be. If you ask me whether I want there to be, I don't for a number of reasons. I mean, and I think you may disagree with me on this. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's incredibly anti-democratic and it gums the works up even further in a Senate where uh, what something like Republicans have, you know, had a majority, at, in, you know, and we're, rep- we're only representing what? 20 million fewer people, or I'd have to look up the exact number. They get two senators from Wyoming where there's more cows than people. Um, you know, like there's there's things like that that uh, and and in the end, you can go to Mitch McConnell and be like, you know, if you won't do, you know, if you won't let us have a vote on the five or six priority, you know, filibuster everything else if you want. We'll put on judges. We'll put our people in positions of power in the cabinet, whatever. We don't need you anymore. And then on five or six things, you're going to, you know, or a few things will go through reconciliation and five or six non-economic things, immigration, guns, a few things. You're going to let us have a vote. And if you don't, uh, then we're going to take away right. the filibuster. You're going to hold it as a threat. I mean, personally, look, I, I, I don't like the filibuster. I, I don't think many people like the filibuster. My concern about it, and when I talk to insiders from the Senate, I, I worked in the House. I didn't work in the Senate. So when I talk to friends and colleagues um, who, with a lot more Senate experience than I, the point they raise is you have to, it's like a game of chess. You have to see a couple of moves down the board. And, you know, look, as we were referring to before, Situations change. This is very volatile. When volatile, when you have this kind of uh, razor thin, the thinnest of possible right. majorities, um, you know, look, look, look at what happened with Scott Brown. Now, in that case, the margin there was between fifty nine and sixty. But when Ted Kennedy died, we went from having a filibuster-proof right. to not, and it completely upended the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And look, Among we are in a global the, that, pandemic. Many other things, frankly, we had a whole lot of things that we ended up not being able to pass. Absolutely. And so, look, here we are. We're we're in a we're we're in a global pandemic, and we have, let's face it, um, not the healthiest, youngest bunch uh, in the U.S. Senate. And we have uh, Joe Manchin. Uh, I wonder how much comes- Ossoff just lowered the average age by coming in at thirty-three. Oh, uh, uh, immeasurably, immeasurably. <laughs> um, actually, it's that like is I'm measurable. excited. It's mathematically like, measurable, but the guy's thirty-three. As I say, I'm excited now. He's like probably one of three senators that may be younger than me. Oh yeah, no, I mean he's 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 definitely changing the curve. But anyway, my point is that with the filibuster, there are always unintended consequences. 
the worm turns awfully fast in the US True. when you're, and so what you just, you, you might be in a better position having it as a threat, having it as a consequence to intransigence on the part of Mitch McConnell than you are actually going through with it. Because once you've gone through with it, once you've pressed that DEFCON 1 button, it is awfully hard to wind back. And there's a whole lot that spirals out of it. So I, 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 Can I say one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. I mean, I agree, except for my analysis of all of it is, you know, it, it's, it's funny because Donald Trump can't control his Twitter account and can't control his manic outbursts on, you know, and these things, you know, we're always talking about the norms that he's destroyed, which are true. And I mean, worse than anyone else in terms that we've seen in terms of, not staffing departments and putting his cronies. I mean, it's all true. So I'm not, I'm not trying to lighten it at all, but we don't talk enough about what McConnell did, you know, in the same fashion. And it's one of the reasons why we got Trump because he broke our political system to get power. And so I bring that up because I can go through the litany of things he has done, uh, you know, but the, the key thing is, you know, well, let me give you two examples quickly. Obviously one is Merrick Garland, which everybody's familiar with. Another one is, is blue slips. I think that's what they're called, where, where a home state senator had to support um, the, the, the judges picked from there. I'll just say quickly, McConnell will do whatever he wants when he thinks it benefits him. So keeping the filibuster, it's, it's a fig leaf in some, in some ways because he will just get rid of it the minute he needs to. And we need to keep that in mind. Well, that's a really good point. And I think we've been reminded in, in the last week of just how thin of a red, white, and blue line exists between the continuation of our democratic system of government and yeah. a complete meltdown. And it's come down in the last week to Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State of the state of Georgia, who has stood up to the president of the United States, the leader of his own party against bullying and political pressure. And this to- is going to purge 200,000 voters from the rolls in Georgia, like our heroes in the Republican Party are still not the best of people, but they're just people that basically didn't want to go to prison and followed the law. And we, and I do appreciate that he did what was right there. I mean, I believe you can give credit and criticize at the same time. Um, but I do think it's really important to point out that I would never keep the filibuster because I assume that McConnell will keep it. The minute if there were a bill that would make his donors overwhelmingly happy and he determined it was worth getting rid of, like he determined it was worth getting rid of with the Supreme Court vote, he will do it. Uh, well, that's, that's that is fair. That is fair. It's it's yeah, it's it's complicated. Well, look, all of this is so complicated. Let's take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue to unpack the future of the U.S. Senate with Cliff Schechter here on WKXL. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record here on WKXL. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm with Cliff Schechter, uh, creative consultant to the Joe Biden that's president-elect Joe Biden uh, campaign uh, for Blue Amp Strategies um, and also a prolific tweeter, writer, um, podcaster of the on the unpre- – what's your Twitter handle so people can follow you? It's at Cliff Schechter. So if you can figure out that they dropped an H out of my last name on the boat over to the country, it's just C-L-I-F-F. It's a great follow. Yeah, it's a great follow, and that's a great portal to find the podcast. All right, we're talking about – premature overreaction theater. We're talking about the very likely result that the the Democrats have taken control of the U.S. Senate, giving them control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency as of January 20th. Oh my God, socialism's coming, Matt. Well, well, you know, now you're going to get aggregated for saying that. That that is, um, 
20 bucks says you're going to see a lot of Game of Thrones memes saying socialism is coming. Actually, I shouldn't have just I, said I'd that. I'd love to be on the, my favorite app, Parlay. Not oh, Parlay, yes. folks. Parlay today. Oh, Parlay. Um, oh, we're Because they're very French. They're, they're very oh. sophisticated. Um, I'd like to be there and to, to, to see all the... Uh, to see all of them freaking out about uh, how you know we're, we we now might as well prepare for the killing fields of Cambodia because um, Pol Pot is coming here to re-educate society and uh, socialize everything and uh, I don't know who knows what they're coming out. Well, they probably totally... don't know who Pol Pot is. I'm giving them too much credit. Stalin's an easier one. They've heard of him. Well, look, I that is clearly what is coming, right? Like, I mean, winter is coming from the Republican Party. We know. Um, there's actually a very good Republican polling firm that had a, a, a very insightful presentation about a year back of just how much value add to their messaging they get from adding the word socialism to everything they say. It's magic Republican pixie dust. You get a 10 point bump in support for your message if you say that what Democrats are doing is socialism. So yes, that is definitely coming. But speaking of which, that's a great lead in to the next thing I wanted to, to lob at you. Um, look, yeah. We know this is coming. You very compellingly a few minutes ago made the case that Democrats, yes, they, they have to not overreach, but they have to not underreach either. That it's a lack of aggression in 2014, 2010 that, that may have been their undoing. So um, even going back as far as 1994. So let me ask you this. What about the other side of the equation? Um, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is probably in her final term as uh, House Speaker. She has She's stated that, that when she ran in 18, when we took the House back, Democrats yeah. took the House, that she was only going to serve two terms. So right. unless she goes back on that, she's this is it. This is probably it. And, she, and look, and so that that gives her that gives her a ton of leeway to she can protect the left Frank uh, flank for Joe Biden, for Joe Manchin in the Senate. You know, she can she can try and tamp mm -hmm. things down. But you get a lot further, and you were alluding to this earlier, you get a lot further as a party, not by wielding the hammer, but by trying to keep people in the boat, rowing in the same direction. Sure. So what should the Democrats be doing? They have a, uh, a, a resurgent left flank. They have new, outspoken, very liberal members of the House. Uh, and there are expectations that are rising across the nation right now about what's going to get done with Democrats wielding this kind of control. So how should Democrats navigate that? Well, first, I would temper those expectations right away and do the best job educating people as to what this all means. Like, we're a government still. Um, there are people take votes and just having 50 people from one party in one body, not to mention only what, 222 is that the current count i guess there's two vacancies so we made maybe you know i assume in the marcia fudge uh seat you know and in the other one that we Cedric that Richmond. are yeah very democratic we'll probably end up at 224 um but still that's not a very large majority historically um so so you need to to explain to people you know what we're you know basically you need you know let's just say you need good messaging okay they need to all get together and when I say they, leadership from the House, the Senate, and the Biden administration, they need to and bring in relevant cabinet members when it's, you know, if it's something to do with health and human services or whatever. And they need to do an aggressive, you know, messaging. I spoke earlier about how the, uh, President Obama said in his memoir that that was his biggest failure, is that he felt they felt, he, you know, I think you always felt like that was one of the biggest weaknesses. And I'm a big Obama fan. He had a lot of strengths. We got to be honest here. His weakness is that he always felt like he was sort of the 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 politicking was below him, you know. 
Um, and you, I'm sorry, marketing is a part of the job. They needed to be out there selling and, you know, letting people know this is the stimulus. This is what it does. Here's how much money is going to your specific area to build this bridge or do whatever to create jobs to. So some sort of, you know, to me, I think they can win support on some sort of a real infrastructure bill. Trump talked about it. You know, every week was infrastructure week until they ran out of weeks. Um, I think on gun violence if they're willing to do it in a reasonable way. Again, they can't get 60 votes, so it's going to have to be a conversation. Susan Collins and Pat, and, and Pat Toomey both have supported background checks uh, in the past. I think they're the only two Republicans left, but I do think Elisa Murkowski, especially when we consider what's happened since then in Parkland and the rest, maybe you bring Elisa Murkowski along, maybe you bring a Mitt Romney along, maybe you bring one or two others, maybe even a, a, a Rob Portman, you don't know. Uh, and other, you know, a few others. Um, I think you have to have to uh, to, you know, the climate stuff is a little going to be a little more difficult again because Joe Manchin and Tester. I mean, we've got two people from coal states who are who are, you know, on the more conservative side of the Democratic caucus. But I, I, well, I guess what I'm saying here is they need to sit down and put together a couple of priorities. You want quick victories. You don't want those stupid stories coming out that they love to write at Politico. Plus, my friends at Politico, place and, and and the Hill and places like that about Democrats in disarray and infighting and you know put together I, what I would be doing is sitting down and saying what are the ten most impactful things I can do via um, executive order by Joe Biden immediately and have those lined up week after week maybe do one a week you know roll out roll out roll out maybe two a week uh, what are the most impactful things I can do through reconciliation which is going to take a little bit longer and what are the things we're willing to threaten Mitch McConnell for. And say you better let this vote go through, or you know. And and I try to get. I think immigration reform is an enormous one, and it's important. Um, and one we might even win a couple of Republicans support, even like a John Cornyn, you know, on the border in Texas, who's you know been for it before and realizes that he will lose in the future if he doesn't do something about this now because his state is changing. I just I think that 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 we need to be messaging, reaching out, putting coalitions together. And getting you know, and getting victories that are covered in the media right away. That's that would be what I would be telling. That you. makes a ton of sense to me. And I, you know, I will just point out that there is a fundamental institutional difference between the House and the Senate, which is that the House, really, the one vote you take <laughs> at the very beginning of your term for who is the speaker, i.e., who is the party in charge, that's the most consequential perhaps the only truly consequential vote you take in many instances as a member of the U.S. House, that wielding the majority is what really matters. The Senate's different. The Senate operates by unanimous consent. Each senator is a power center in her or his own right. And so it's a much more fluid and, as you say, coalition building type atmosphere. So I wanted to ask you, one of the things we saw at the tail end of 2020 was a bipartisan gang, and they're, they're big on gangs in the Senate, coming together. There used to be a gang of 14. Now, I don't know. It's a, it's a gang of something. But you saw, and you name-checked some of the some of the folks involved, the Susan Collinses and the Gene Shaheens and Maggie Hassans and Kirsten Sinemas, some of these center-leaning right. senators coming and together. And even, you know, I want to say quickly, and I'll let no. you continue, you can even bring in a few people, I think, on one specific issue where they have an interest. 
I didn't yeah. mention before, I loathe Marco Rubio, but he's shown an interest in doing something on immigration, right? Right, um, right, right. There's there's no permanent friends and enemies. There's only correct. permanent interests. So so that's really the question for you, which is, okay, nominally, Chuck Schumer, more than nominally, uh, formally, he becomes the leader of the U.S. Senate. But in a more practical sense, is there a possibility of you know, maybe with some floating in and out, depending on the issue. But is there a possibility for a core group of a dozen or so senators from both parties actually coming together and say, look, we're the bottleneck. We we are the, the up or down on everything. Nothing moves in, in our system of government. Nothing moves unless we say so. Is that a possibility? Could we really have a centrist coalition come together? Yeah. I mean, you saw it was I think there's been there there centrist coalition signed a letter around the, the lunacy of what's going on with the electoral votes right now. Um, so you already saw that come together. I think it was Romney and Toomey and Collins and a few Murkowski and whatever. And then a bunch of Democrats who are the more moderate Coons, you know, and Manchin and whatever were like, you know, who got together. I'm not sure. I, again, I'm, I don't I'm not some of the names I remember some I'm just guessing. Um to, to, to show, say how ridiculous it was that, that anyone was going to st- you know, try to stand up in, in, in the way of this electoral vote certification. Uh, I do think there's a possibility because obviously that's helpful to, to folks who want to look bipartisan and take some of the pressure off of you're betraying your caucus and whatever. But I would say the questions are, I have no doubt there'll be moderate Democrats wanting to do that. No doubt. The question will be, will Republicans have the courage to do that um, and, and, and say, you know, we're willing to be seen working with the other party. If that means that I have to explain that because, you know, the right-wing media is radicalizing my base, telling people that Democrats are baby murderers and I should never work with them on anything. And then the other question is Mitch McConnell. Are they going to be scared of him? If he says to them, I don't want you doing this. I don't want you giving any victories like he did with Obama. You know, a few of them broke with him in the end on the stimulus when he did that in 2008. Susan Collins, who's still there, was one of them, our inspector in Olympia Snow. Uh, will there be ones that are willing to break with, you know, uh, the the Republican Party? I think on some issues there will be. So well, yeah, I think there's I think a chance. I think oh, there's I a chance there. Right? I absolutely think you should seek that um, and and try to do it. You know, you just we just have to remember, of course, even if they they don't convince McConnell it, through either carrots, sticks, or both that he's going to let votes happen six Republicans or four Republicans or whatever joining something is not going to do it because you're going to need 10 of them, you know? So if you can get 10 of them, then you've got a real threat. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think there's going to be, there's going to be competing pressures. You know, I think you agree with this, that the, the standard playbook here, and this was set back in 2009 is you're out of power and you recoalesce as a party in opposition. And it's, Every, it's basically the my cousin Vinny approach, right? Like everything that guy just said is, you know what, is, is BS. Yeah. And that worked. Why, why, do you, why do you adopt that strategy? Because it works. And talk about the Obama biography. I mean, he comes out in his memoirs and says, look, they talked about this openly, that their best political strategy was to oppose, throw sand in the gears, oppose yep. everything I did, call everything I do socialist. And it works. And, and a number so of Republicans gonna... wanted to work with them to say, say it quickly. And they were threatened by, by, the, by the leaders of the House and the Senate. So it's also important to state that we need to find people that have the courage to say, you know, I'm going to do what's best, you know, and, and go from there. 
Well, the only question that would come up, so that'll be powerful, right? And especially when you've got party funders, I mean, it was the Koch brothers, they've actually pulled back some of their political activity since then. And they but, came out, in, in, in they and the Chamber of Commerce both came out massively in favor of, of certifying the electoral votes and saying it's ridiculous to challenge it. I made a joke on Twitter the other day, but it, it's a joke, but it's not, it's actually true, is that the Tea Party has now become the moderate wing of the GOP. Remember the Tea Party in 2010? That was the fringe, the crazies, the oh whatever. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Compared to the seditionists, the Tea Party is the moderate wing. But I mean, it does bring, so you, you name checked Pat Toomey and Richard Burr earlier. So those are two retiring Republican Correct. senators whose incentives, whose person, that's really the question to me is. And especially Toomey, I'll say quickly, he yeah. said any corporate board he wants, he's a former commodities trader. I think he's pretty wealthy. Like that matters. I, it's sad that that matters. But it does matter because most of these folks don't go off to build houses like Jimmy Carter until they're 100 years old. They want to lobby and make as much money as possible. I think Burr actually got in trouble for insider trading is pretty wealthy, too. So so that's important because it's not going to be as important to them, you know, lining up a lobbying gig, probably. And, you know, but I'd add this quickly, which is I would love to have their votes on bipartisan measures, but particularly in the case of, uh, of Pennsylvania, but also North Carolina. Has, has I don't know. I've, I've lost track of what was going on. Has, has Biden uh, even nominated a secretary of commerce yet? I don't believe so. And I, I, think, that I, I think that I might offer that to either Burr or to me, because here's the deal or Susan Collins, for that matter, if she wanted it, because those are three states that have Democratic governors. And if any of those three people took a position in the cabinet as a capstone to their career, because they're not going to be president. Maybe they don't want to be. It doesn't matter. But that's the capstone is you get to be a, a, a you know, a, a you know, a secretary uh, in, a, in a cabinet, well, then you get an appointed Democrat and now you're at 51 and you've got that much less work to do. Although I will say that there is some history there, right? That That's exactly what happened with Judd Gregg, New Hampshire moderate senator in 2009. He was he offered the off. position and he backed off. And why? Because the whole party revolted behind the scenes. Barbara Bush apparently called him to beg him not to do this. And, you know, it was pretty, they made it out as you will. I didn't even know the Barbara Bush thing, which is really sad because, again, some of these Republicans who now are, you know, bemoan that Donald Trump got to where he got to in the state of things should really look at the roles they played along the way. Uh, well, you know? absolutely. I mean, and, you know, look, so it's I, I guess my overall point is just that this question of whether there whether it's possible to sort of form a centrist cartel, uh, I think it'll turn on. The, the the there's an overall set of political incentives for Republicans. We know that they have a playbook and Mitch McConnell is going to remind them of this. And a lot of them were around for it. We know this works for us to be against everything. But are there enough Toomey's, Burr's, retiring senators who have maybe in their personal interest to be part of an effort like that? Or are there enough Republican and Democratic senators who say, look, as part of my personal political calculus, I'm better off looking bipartisan. I'm better off like a Ben Sass type from Nebraska. He's another, you know, uh, he's a conservative. He's not going to agree with us on a lot of stuff, but he's another wild card in that, you know, I mean, he's, he caves too often and, and you know, there's different levels of, of antipathy I have for different members, depending upon what they're willing to do. But at least he's willing to sp speak out here and there. He's one of the few who, spoke out, you know, even with a, a potential primary, I don't think it ended up, uh, you know, uh, coming to pass, but it could have in Nebraska because he was up for re-election this time. And so I will give him some credit on that. 
yeah, he is certainly somebody because he's not part of the, the Trump cult that I would cultivate uh, and go and sit down with and talk to because on some things, you know, and I'm sorry, maybe we need to play some hardball on some of this stuff. And again, this is where I'm not, I've never worked in the Senate. I'm a campaign guy. So maybe I don't know the way it works, but I would think, you know, he's from Nebraska. Nebraska tends to like their, their, their farm subsidies. Well, maybe then for your farm subsidies, we're going to get a vote on background checks. Uh, a lot of us who think that bar- farm subsidies are bloated and ridiculous and often go to agribusiness anyhow. Um, and so, you know what, like be willing to play some ball. I think that this, that's a reasonable position to take, which is if you're going to get some of what you want that is for your state, then those of us who live in other states who care about things in our states like gun violence and environmental degradation, we're going to get what we want too. Um, well, it's a, gonna... that's, a, that's a great point because one of the dilemmas that I think is now going to come up is, um, and, and look, in the, in the other case, in the, in the alternate universe where Mitch McConnell held on, the Republicans held on, this would have been less of an issue. But it really will be a, a bit of a dilemma for Democrats. How much honey, how much vinegar? How much are you, do, is there a possibility of building kind of a, a, a centrist coalition that allows a Biden administration to get things done, which as you pointed out earlier, that's the number one thing, right? It's yep. under delivery. It's under delivery. It, you identified as the Achilles heel of the past experiences, past administrations. And so, you know, do you, do you incentivize and work with, or do you, there are going to be plenty of voices on the Democratic side who are going to say, are you kidding me? We just saw this movie in 2009. You turned the keys to the car in the stimulus over to the Republicans, over to the Olympia snow types, ditto in the ACA, and you got almost nothing for it. And, you know, I'm not saying you turn that over to them, though. Frankly, I would love to have them join and have it be bipartisan. When it comes to economic measures, well, we don't need them. As far as I'm concerned, we don't need them. And I wouldn't turn anything. I wouldn't turn it. If it can be done under reconciliation, uh, which, which tax increases can be done because the Republicans pioneered doing their tax cuts through reconciliation. So we don't need them on that. I would hope that some of them would join and whatever, but raising taxes on the rich, absolutely don't need them. We should do it. I mean, obviously we need, we need Manchin and, and every Democrat to stay in line then. Um, when it comes to raising social security payments, also budgetary matter. I believe we can do that through re- reconciliation. These are the things that, you know, and, and elderly voters became much more democratic. A lot of it, I think, was based around the negligence on COVID um, on the, uh, you know, uh, uh, that Donald Trump and his party engaged in. But, uh, but you want to keep them with you? There's something you can do. I think you, can, you also can increase. I was seeing a, an expert, a friend on, on Twitter, on, uh, on the ACA, Charles Gabba, who writes about it a lot, talked about how the, the, they've lowered and attacked the subsidies. Well, the ACA subsidies can be, again, added to. And that can be done through reconciliation. So, I mean, I would try. To me, the difference is between turning it over to Republicans versus come along with us. We'll find ways to give you things you want for your state to your things you want for your ideology. Uh, but if you don't, then uh, you know what we are. What we didn't do in 2009 is we're going to use the stick. Maybe you're not going to get your farm subsidies. You know, I mean, right now, if we, you know, with the, 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 the stupid position that the Republicans took towards Cuba after Obama opened up relations and everything, these farm states are begging to sell their, their supply, sell their, their um, product. I'm lacking words there in Cuba. They want us to open relations. So on something like that, you're going to get a Ted Cruz demagogue and Marco Rubio demagoguing and being big pains in the butt. But 
You're going to get a bunch of farm state Republicans who are going to know that it's going to help them. Well, maybe you do that, but you're also going to vote for the stimulus then. You know, All right, so I we've mean, got about a minute left here. Let me yeah. let me read back to you. Let me see if I can sum up what I think are like the four tenets of Cliff Schechterism. If you were giving advice to the Democrats, to Joe Biden, your former client, uh, to Chuck Schumer right now, it's one: Democrats curb your enthusiasm. Right? Let's 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 not overexpect what we're going to get done, done here. There, by the way. Two thanks. Uh, economics, 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 and deliver, deliver, deliver. We have to make sure that we do something with this or the voters will punish Democrats in 2022. And finally, it sounds like you're suggesting hold the stick. You don't have to, you don't have to hit with the stick. You, ha- you, you, can, you can walk softly, but hold the stick. Is that a good sum I mean, up? Yes. Oh, can, I, can I have 30 seconds? You have 30 what? seconds. Make, make sure it's, the stick part is also make sure to, to be clear you're going to use it. And it's not just because that they didn't use that. And, and it is, you know, we're still going to support good policy. It's not we're going to oh, make the people of your state starve. But there are a lot of things we don't have to do. And we may just not do them, you know, for your for you and push harder. But there's one fourth plank to this, too. And this won't shock you as you're talking to me. Communicate, 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 market, market, market. You can't just assume because your ideas are better that people who watch shows with conspiracies and whatever that watch Alex Jones are going to get it. Well, we're going to have to stop there. Cliff Schechter, you got the final word. Thank you so much for being with us on Off the Record for your insights. And we'll have you back soon. Welcome to an emergency edition of Politics Pulse, where we get the pulse of the nation uh, perspectives on what is going on in Washington and beyond. And uh, today we are in a position of Democrats having woken up, finding an unexpected Christmas present under the tree in the form of two apparent wins in the Georgia Senate races that will deliver them the slimmest of Senate majorities and deliver President-elect Joe Biden a majority in the House, the executive agencies, and a majority in the U.S. Senate. But the question is, is this all a good thing? Is it complicated? My sense is there's a lot to unpack in this particular Christmas present. No one better to do that than my guest here, Joshua Holland, uh, editor, writer, political analyst extraordinaire. You can find him all over the internet. You should look him up. Joshua, welcome. And uh, let's let's jump right into it. I'm I'm excited to talk about this. I'm excited to be talking about it. It, it. it was not. Did you, I mean, be honest with, with our listeners here. You have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in politics better than just about anyone I know. Were you expecting when you went to bed last night that this is the way this would go down? Well, as a, as a high level political nerd, I did not go to bed last night until I knew how this was going to go down. But as of yesterday morning, I absolutely did not expect this outcome. And I, I have to tell you something, Matt, I didn't allow myself to expect this outcome. It is, um, this is Georgia that we're talking about. This is a state that has a very rich tradition of voter suppression and a lot of shenanigans with closing polling places, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the Republican election officials in Georgia have gotten a lot of praise for standing up to Donald Trump's efforts to um, overturn or, or undermine the, the legitimacy of the election. But um, these guys are, are good at, at, uh, at suppressing Democratic votes. So I, I did not expect to pull this off. Although I, um, I was feeling more uh, optimistic as the past, as it became clear over the past couple of weeks that 
Republicans were not running with a very, very targeted focus on the message that they needed to check unified control um, by Democrats, that they needed the Senate to be a, a, a balance against um, Biden and um, and, the, and the House and the Democratic-led House, and instead indulged in these conspiracy theories that said that the voting is rigged, et cetera, et cetera. That was, I, I mean, I, this is one of those times when the conventional wisdom is fairly obviously right that that hurt um, that hurt their that that hurt their turnout on the on the Republican side. This is why, as a personal matter, I never feel like I need to seek revenge because I feel like not only is the arc of the moral universe long and it bends toward justice, but also these things just tend to come around. And we're seeing that in a big way, obviously, with uh, all the ways that Donald Trump's behavior is now causing Republican chickens to come home to roost. But, you know, I do think that it, it sets up this kind of um, interesting question. Politico playbook led this morning with the following sentence. Twin Democratic wins with Joe Biden's agenda to life, with demands from progressives to go big and bold and centrists not to overplay their hand. Hope you're ready, Chuck Schumer. So that kind of gets into what I was talking about at the, at the top of the show here, that this is probably, you know, good news, smiles all around. But it does remind me a little bit of the end of the 1974 movie, The Candidate, where Robert Redford finds that he's won. And then he turns to his campaign manager and says, what do we do now? There's a lot that Democrats have to do now. So is this all good news? Well, I mean, if you're a progressive, the, and, you, and you just look at who's running the, uh, the who's chairing the committees, it, it's, it's, it's good news. I mean, you're going to have, um, if Lindsey Graham is no longer going to be at, in the justice uh, running the, the Judiciary Committee, you're going to have... Um, Bernie Sanders in charge of the budget committee. Yeah, it's 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 good news. Now it's going to be difficult because um, they clearly don't have the votes in the Senate, at least at this point, to talk about um, filibuster reform. So, the most powerful people in Washington right now are arguably like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kristen Sinema of, of Arizona, the kind of more conservative Democrats are going to have a lot of sway over this caucus, but. You know, for those who have a long memory, it seems to me that everything is relative. And, and one thing is fairly clear to me, which is that the kind of blue dog moderate Democrats in this Congress um, are going to be significantly more progressive than in the 2009 era Congress that um, that Barack Obama had to deal with. So. We'll see, you know, we have yet to see how that will play out in terms of legislation, but this is, is it's going to be a very different dynamic than what we saw um, in Obama's first term. That is a really killer point that the center of gravity has shifted a little bit. And I, I worked in the House, so House side, but same kind of politics. I worked for Blue Dog members, and uh, I can tell you that that Blue Dog kind of uh, center left, very moderate coalition is definitely very different today. I, but I, you know, I kind of want to ask about the about the left side of the equation. I mean, you are really tied in um, to the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the progressive wing yeah. of the party. How do they? How do they position themselves? It, it seems like there's sort of a 
there's sort of a, a dilemma here for, I don't want to just reduce this all to AOC, but let's just use her as, as sort of an example. Um, for the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, there's sort of the outsider strategy of agitating, putting pressure, um, you know, being loud on Twitter, trying to push publicly uh, the, the agenda of the Senate and the House and, and the Biden administration to the left toward the priorities that, that you believe in. There's also what you might call the Elizabeth Warren strategy, which is certainly robust on the outside, but is much more about being a cagey inside operator, getting your people placed in strategic positions, making tweaks to legislation that go in the direction that you want. So how does the progressive left and their leaders navigate this in this new Washington reality? Well, I, you know, I think that there is more than one progressive left at this point. Um, you're seeing a, a real divergence on the left and, and the usual suspects are not falling exactly where you might have expected them to fall on issues like forcing a vote on, on uh, Medicare for all. This was a big kind of, you know, brouhaha on Twitter. Uh, and in the, the lefty world over the last couple of weeks, whether they should um, use their leverage over getting Nancy Pelosi, uh, the speakership to force a vote on Medicare for all. A lot of people who are very, you know, very militant leftists thought that that was a stupid strategy. And um, that was a really an intra-left fight. So I think we'll see what I hope is that there will be some lessons learned from the Obama era um, and I think that you are seeing as more progressives, more, you know, real, even self-identified socialists, social democrats, uh, get into power the, with the squad. I think you are seeing uh, a bit of a, a divergence. And, you know, those people are playing an inside-outside game. They are playing an inside-outside game. You have the, a contingent of the left you could call it the podcast left, the Twitter, you know, left. That is, um, and I, you know, I'm going to get in trouble saying this, uh, and some of these people are actually my friends, but they are um, very, very into score settling. They have made things like support for a specific approach to healthcare reform, a litmus test, and, um, you know, they're shouty they are seen by a lot of people as the left. And I think that that's a mistake. And we, we have to stop looking at the, you know, these podcasters that don't have a lot of influence within the movement writ large, right? The left is grassroots organizing, the, the left that matters. It's, it's the grassroots organizers, it's labor, it's environmental people, it's the immigration activists working um, to really achieve movement in the center of, the, of gravity in this country. And, um, you know, I, th I think that they're gonna have more um, reasonable expectations of what can be achieved. Because look, a lot can be done. A lot can be done. Even if you don't get rid of the filibuster, there's a lot that can be done. We're gonna talk about this on my podcast this week. Um, among other things is what can be done through budget reconciliation, what can't be done through budget reconciliation. That's a process for those who don't know where, um, and you only get a limited number of shots because it, it, uh, uh, at this because it has to do with 
reconciling the budget, just like it sounds, but you can achieve a lot and it can't be filibustered in the, in the, in the Senate. So even if you don't have the votes to eliminate the filibuster or reform the filibuster, which I, again, I don't think that they do have, um, they can deliver a lot for the progressive wing and for their constituents writ large. And I think that there's a real understanding that if they don't do that, they are going to have, uh, well, it will be almost guaranteed that they lose the, the 2022 midterms, but also that they will have an enduring problem with their base, with, with the demotivated base. They have to deliver. And they, and they, and they seem to know it. I, I mean, the, the, the sense that I get speaking to, um, to congressional reporters is that, is that there is a, a understanding uh, you know, um, among the, the among the Biden people and within the Senate Democratic Caucus, that uh, they actually have a very short window to do stuff, and um, and that they really have to do, and they've learned from the the experience of the Obama administration. Yeah, you're you're putting me in mind of uh, the famous scene in The Untouchables where Robert De Niro gives the speech about, you know, you can be a star on your own, the live long day, but you get nowhere unless the team wins. And I I do get a little bit of that sense myself from the people I talk to. Um, not I'm not as well sourced um, on the progressive left as I think you are, um, but I, I I do get this sense that uh, that this is all about delivery. That there are really significant challenges greater, I think, than were faced in 2009 uh, with the incoming Obama administration. Yeah. And uh, that this is all about delivery, that, that you know, they're going to rise and fall on, on what they get done. Of course, another mechanism, you know, that, that, I th that comes to mind as you talk about how to go about getting things done is the potential for kind of a redux of what we saw at the tail end of 2020 with you know, the Senate is big on gangs, right? And so you saw this kind of moderate coalition, some Republicans, the Murkowskis and Romneys of the world, and uh, uh, some Democrats, the Mansions and uh, Shaheens and, and Hassans of the world. Do you think that there is uh, enough potential on the Republican side in the Senate for moderates, maybe for outgoing senators like Burr and Toomey um, and, and some of these Collins, Murkowski types, to want for their own incentives, for their own political purposes, to try and you know, create moderate positions and, and craft legislation together? Um, or do you think that this is gonna be much more of an exercise in political muscle, reconciliation, using the tools uh, of legislating to kind of get things through? Well, I mean, you know, the, the Senate Republicans face the same kind of structural issues that they've had throughout this time, right? Trump is not going to go away. He's going to control a significant share of the base. Um, the conservative media has created a kind of uh, a punishment infrastructure for working with Democrats. You, you, it's, it's very, very difficult for these people to work across uh, the aisle. The one, so I, I am not optimistic at all. Um, the one area where, where I think that there could be some, some progress, you could get maybe 10 moderate Republicans to work with Democrats, um, give, give it, to give Democrats a filibuster-proof uh, margin would be some kind of um, milquetoast good government stuff uh, to try to you know, address some of the weaknesses in our institutions that have been laid bare by Donald Trump. So uh, you, know, you could see 
various reforms to um, the Judicial Vacancies Act. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, for example, is leaving office with uh, multiple agencies being headed by these people who are described as the senior official acting in the capacity of you know, the head of Department of Homeland Security or whatever. Uh, the government is riddled with those. And, you know, those kinds of reforms, I think you probably could get, I think you could probably get a, a, a bipartisan coalition to pass some of those with the Romneys and the Collinses, Susan Collinses, et cetera. But um, I don't see, uh, I, don't, I don't see Republicans having the, um, the wiggle room to work with Democrats and, you know, Yes, even some that may be retiring. You don't have that many that are retiring, first of all. Uh, not enough to get you to 60. But even after retirement, they, they are expecting that they, they have a post-Senate uh, post career somewhere in conservative politics. And um, remember that Trump and, and his family and some of his um, you know, more prominent supporters are, are saying that they're well, they've raised a lot of money and they're saying that they are explicitly going to target uh, Republicans who, you know, do not remain loyal to the president, even when he is out of office. And so it's going to be um, it's going to be very difficult for them to to become reasonable. And this is this is the big problem for the Republican Party. Right. They've created a monster here. Every moderate, even center right policies are just demagogued beyond recognition on Fox News and now with OANN and and even more, uh, you know, Newsmax, even more extreme media um, gaining a greater voice in the conservative movement, it's going to be even worse. So, you know, are you going to be able to do criminal justice reform? Mm, maybe. I don't know. I'm not. Up yeah. To yeah. I, I wouldn't hold up. My, of course, you know, you and I have talked before about the fact that and you alluded to this a few minutes ago, there really is a surprisingly short window for an incoming administration to get through their agenda. Now, there's a lot that a president can do through executive order, through agency action. And believe me, there is a steaming pile of problems that the Trump administration have left behind in all of the executive agencies. So the agency folks are going to be, they're going to have their hands full with trying to clean up that mess. But legislatively. Uh, we know from historical studies that there really is about an 18-month window where you're most effective, and it comes in that first 18 months of a four-year presidential term, especially yep. with a president like Biden, who is widely anticipated to perhaps serve just one term. It is going to be a, a pretty narrow uh, gap that they're going to have to try and fit a lot of problem solving through. And that sets up a little bit of the gumball problem where you have a lot of things trying to move through a potentially narrow opening. So what do you think the priorities have to be for Democrats now that they have the an expanded ability to move things? What does that order of operations look like? If you got to, if you got to really move only like three things, what are those things? This is a, a kind of complex question, uh, more complex than it seems at first, because uh, there's a few things going on. Let me let me first say that um, this is one reason why it is so important that they picked up those two Senate seats, because they are not going to spend a ton of time fighting to get every 
freaking nominee in, in place, right? Um, this is going to streamline, they're going to be able to focus on the issues at hand and assemble a team that they want. Um, yeah, and your attendant's pretty happy today, right? Yeah, no, this is, a, this is really important in terms of just freeing up enough bandwidth to deal with the things. Uh, then there are some extremely obvious, you know, um, crisis-driven uh, priorities. The highest priority is uh, fixing the vaccine rollout. I mean, that is the highest priority, and and the other measures that they've um, that they've already said that they're going to take to contain the coronavirus pandemic. After that, uh, and and you know the the economic stimulus parts of that as well. So that, that's obviously their first priority and, and that's not even a choice. After that, then you have to ask, well, what can be done through budget reconciliation or um, what stands a chance of getting 60 votes? And then that's why, that's why it gets a little more complicated because you can do things in budget reconciliation on uh, taxes, you can roll back Trump's tax cuts to get more uh, income. You can do some immigration stuff. You can do some climate stuff. You can expand the Affordable Care Act. There's a lot of things that you can't do through reconciliation. So, you know, I mean, I think that one of our highest priorities has to be climate, right? And that's a difficult thing to do through that process. And there's, um, so I think that Voting rights is really um, is really high on the list, and that's going to be something that is is not very easy to um, to do with with fifty seats in the Senate. But um, you know, there's I mean that has to be the party's priority is the new Voting Rights Act. I mean, I, I don't know, and I think that they should pursue it aggressively and make Republicans actually filibuster it and not, you know, pre-negotiate with themselves. But, um, you know, of what you can do, um, because budget reconciliation, the easiest, most straightforward things are things that impact the budget, you can kick a lot of stimulus out the door. You can do a lot to deliver for people's, you know, um, kitchen table problems for rent and, and covering, you know, necessities, you know, you've still, I think we're 10 million jobs in the hole still. Um, so whatever the, the number is, we're, you know, still have a, a very high level of unemployment. So they can deliver all of that uh, very early and they're going to have a, a lot of pressure to do so. You know, in the minute or so that we have left, I'll just say going back to what I led off with at the top that that quote from Politico about the pressure, the demands from progressives to go big and bold. I think a lot of the success of the entire Biden and, and Democratic enterprise over the next two years is going to turn on redefining what big and bold means. And if it's only in the form of passing a giant piece of legislation, a la the ACA, ARA, the attempted cap and trade that was uh, undertaken in the House 11 years ago, uh, that's going to be a problem. If you can redefine it, if you can get things done in a lot of places in the agencies, in smaller by attaching smaller pieces to reconciliation, um, you know, and if you can get people to accept that, then I think you can be successful. But that's my perspective. Thirty seconds left. Democrats will be successful if fill in the blank. Joshua Hallett. 
Well, I mean, I th- I think it's 30 seconds. Matt, you're killing me here with 30 seconds. I'm killing you. I know. I know. But you're the Democrats, best. So Democrats will be successful if Donald Trump stays in the picture and keeps their base motivated so that they avoid the typical midterm drop off. Joshua Holland, thank you very much for that insightful last word and for joining us on Politics Pulse, the podcast on the show today. Uh, Real appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it.